and I am so excited to welcome you here today. Um, we've had our we had our risk management conference in early April um, in person after a two-year hiatus, um, one where we had to cancel, and the second year where it was purely virtual. And then for the past five weeks, we have been running a mini virtual conference, with just sort of with the highlights of the in-person conference. Um, this session on uh, the, D, the decision, Marchi and Steve Nelson, it was a very popular session at our risk management conference. And we thought that, you know, since it was um, a great benefit for all of our members to hear our position on this, on this really important Supreme Court of Canada case, um, that we would offer it uh, as a bonus session, sort of outside of the mini virtual conference for free to our members. Um, before I go farther in introducing the session and our speakers, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge um, the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations from which uh, I am hosting this webinar and my colleagues are, are delivering this webinar today. Um, and, and to acknowledge that our, our speakers and our attendees, you all gather on lands belonging to other First Nations communities. Uh, I'm grateful to the Coast Salish people for the opportunity to, to learn and share and engage with local government community on this land. Um, and I encourage you to take a moment to make your own acknowledgement, either silently to yourselves or by using the chat function uh, in, the, in the webinar platform. Um, as we sort of talk about each time we make one of these acknowledgements, I think it's really important not to just sort of check off that we've made this acknowledgement and, and to make it sort of a, a rote practice in what we do but rather to recognize that it is all of our responsibilities um, to engage in, in a meaningful way in the reconciliation process. And at the MIBC, this is something that is really important to us. And so we are always on the lookout for ways that we can collaborate with our members, with other local governments, and with Indigenous communities to support reconciliation. So if there are ways that we at the MIBC can help support you and your communities and engage in the reconciliation process, please reach out to us and let us know how we can, how we can be of assistance and how we might collaborate. So today I, I would like to um, introduce uh, our CEO, Tom Barnes, um, and our Director of Claims, Sherman Chow. And Sherman, Tom, and I are going to discuss the highly publicized case Marchie in the city of Nelson um, and share our take on the decision, including ways in which we've seen this decision impact local governments to date um, and also provide you with some really valuable risk management recommendations. But before we begin, I'd just like to go over some important housekeeping announcements. Um, if you have technical difficulties with the webinar, please, uh, we, we've been at this now for two and a half years of working, you know, uh, with the majority of our work being virtual. So I think we all know uh, the best way to resolve a problem is to exit and rejoin or, or uh, turn off your device and turn it back on. Um, so you can phone into the webinar if you're really having serious technical difficulties, uh, but try exiting, rejoining. That usually resolves most problems. If the problem doesn't resolve, you can always email Heidi Scribner and she can try and assist. 
Um, feel free to ask questions at any time during the presentation. Um, I know Tom always likes to joke that we like to use up all of the talk, the time uh, to talk so that we can avoid answering too many questions. Um, today's session will be about 45 minutes and we have an hour and a half allotted, so we do have plenty of time for questions. And Sherman and I have, have taken a vote um, prior to this and, and decided that since Tom is uh, retiring at the end of this month, Tom will be answering all of the questions on today's webinar. Um, but please use the chat function or the question and answer function at any time during the presentation and then we will answer all the questions at the end of the, um, of the session. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Tom um, to start us off. Okay, well thank you, Megan, and thanks for the opportunity to answer all these questions that aren't going to come in. and. Uh, since I am leaving soon, I have the freedom to tell the truth when I answer the ball. And I, before I get started, I would like to congratulate mm -hmm. Megan. Uh, exactly four weeks from today, uh, she will take my place as the CEO of the MIABC. And uh, I think everybody's really excited about that. It's, uh, it really bodes well for the future of the organization. Um, now we'll dive into Marchie. And uh, I'm going to start just remember if you, the, for, for a couple of days there last uh, last spring, we found ourselves with an MIABC case and municipal liability front page at almost every media outlet in the country with a with a with a headline like the one you see here that the Supreme Court says people could sue cities over snow removal activities that cause injury, as if that was some huge revelation that uh, caught everybody by surprise. Um, I suppose we could be somewhat forgiving of uh, the media because they do tend to get things wrong when they're just dabbling in a story or a subject. And, and this one, uh, they didn't see a lot of nuance there. Uh, if the fundamental fact that uh, people have uh, been suing local governments uh, for injuries arising out of snow removal for decades, if, if not over a century. So that's probably not nuance, it's just a fundamental fact of life is this has been going on in the background and uh, tell it gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, most no people to care. <laughs> and certainly most members of the media simply don't pay attention to it. Yeah. And um, that's perhaps unfortunate, but we know with you, our, our members, uh, that you've been paying attention to it since, since you've been working at the field. And so if the story isn't this huge revolution that suddenly snow removal is something that people can sue uh, local governments for, what is the story? Well, what we're going to try and do today is uh, clear up the controversy that surrounds this decision and share our takeaways from the decision. Uh, today I'm going to start by discussing our principled approach to claims and how we make the decisions on what claims we appeal. And then Megan is going to outline the facts in the Marchie case and discuss the court findings. And uh, next, Sherman is going to discuss some of the practical uh, impacts of the decision. And then we'll, we'll close with uh, sharing some of our risk management advice for local governments. Um, so first, I'll talk about our principled approach to claims. Um, it's really quite simple. And it's very well established. Uh, in fact, I think I could comfortably say that 
you could casually ask any member of our staff what our principled approach to claims handling is, and they'll be able to tell you. Um, it was one of the first matters of principle that the MIABC established when it was founded over 30 years ago. It was a decision made by the very first board, I think probably at its very first meeting. Um, I was there, I don't actually remember it being as fundamental and profound as it turned out to be 30 years later. But remember, we were started to not be an insurance company. We were started to be an organization devoted to covering liability claims for local governments. And we sought to be better than a mere insurance, mere commercial insurance company. And one of the things that local governments found frustrating with uh, commercial insurers is they would turn their claims over to a commercial insurance company who would investigate it and more often than not try to cut their losses by coming to a quick settlement or settling for less than it was going to cost to defend it. And this is very awkward because it encourages people to make more and more claims against local government regardless of their merits. And so our board decided that when we handle claims, we aren't going to settle for anything other than what the merits of the claims are, that we're not going to make a cash payment in order to save defense costs. And the way I've been, tra been translating that policy for, for many years is that every claim that's brought against an MIABC member has to be resolved strictly on its legal merits. If, if we look at that claim and we see that our member is, is, is a serious risk of being found liable, we're going to try and settle it as quickly as we can and as fairly as we can. If we look at a claim and we think that there's a really good defense, we're going to defend that claim as far as we have to in order to establish what we think is the correct defense or the correct principles in which that case should be decided. And if it's somewhere in the middle, then we're going to negotiate a, a fair claim balancing the risk to each party. And that's something we're very good at. It is something that our, 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 our staff lawyers and our, and our claims department have been doing for decades. And they have a very good track record at understanding the, whether we have a liability exposure on a claim and the extent to which it is there and how, how severe that exposure is. And, and I guess the best way we have to illustrate that is every year, only about 30% of all claims brought against MIABC members actually wind up in a payment to the claimant. So that means 70% of the time we decide to deny a claim and we're proved to be uh, correct in that decision. So that is our principled approach in action. The other thing that happens sometimes is you'll get an adverse court ruling, and so we'll appeal that claim. And that's how the Marching claim case got to the Supreme Court of Canada, is, is that we used our, our, our normal process where we got a trial decision uh, and uh, a court of appeal decision to, to try and figure out whether that case was worth appealing. That makes this, again, quite different for commercial insurers who, as again, they're in the business of closing claims not protect or not establishing principles and exploring principles by which local governments uh, may be found liable or could be sued for different activities. So in this case, you'll you'll learn that we actually successfully defended the claim at trial. 
and the claim was dismissed. And uh, in keeping with our principles, we didn't force, we, we recognized the fact that the plaintiff had been seriously injured in this incident. And we didn't want to just make her jump through hoops to make it more expensive for her to, to bring the claim to try and dissuade her because that's not in keeping with her principles either. When we, when we looked at this case, we didn't see uh, with the lawyers that we had defending it and our, our claims department that there was a huge controversy in the end about what the damages would be awarded uh, to the plaintiff if she actually established 100% liability on the on the local government. So we resolved that issue and just went to trial on the issue of liability. So when we won that issue at, 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 the, at the initial court and the case was dismissed, it was the plaintiff who decided to appeal the case to the Court of Appeal. And so we didn't have any choice about that. But when the Court of Appeal came down and unanimously overturned the trial decision and sent the case back for a retrial, we had to figure out whether we were going to try and appeal the decision or, or just simply uh, accept the, court, the court's ruling and, and go back and run it through trial again. So well, the way we, we evaluate whether we want to, to appeal a claim is, is, is probably a little bit unique in that we, first of all, at the staff level, will review uh, the, the reasons and we will review what type of judicial error uh, that, that we think has been made and what the standard of review of the, of the higher courts is going to be. And for that, of course, we need legal advice. And one of, the, one of the things we do also as a matter of course is we don't usually involve um, our trial counsel in helping us make that decision. We will get a report from our trial counsel, but we will almost inevitably retain another lawyer who would have no involvement in the case to review the reasons, to review things with her, with her defense counsel, review the file, and then give us their view based on the fresh set of eyes they have and the experience they have as appellate counsel as to the merits of, of what the appeal could be. Um, so that's how we take care of the legal issues. And if we get that lawyer telling us that there's a, a pretty good chance of, of, of a successful appeal, that will, um, that will weigh heavily on our decision. The, the other thing we look at is how important is that decision? Is, there, is that going to set a precedent in some way that is going to affect lots of other claims that we have open? Uh, particularly if the case seems to be out of step with what we found to be rather settled law and a settled process that the court uses. Or the other thing we will consider is whether or not that case raises uh, an issue that would enable us to gain clarity in, in an area that, uh, that hasn't been clear. And we run through that at the, get our legal advice, we run through, through that at our, at our, with our management team. And then we, we, we make a recommend, recommendation to um, our board of directors claims committee. And, and it, uh, it will tell us whether we should uh, move ahead with the appeal or, or, uh, or just accept what, whatever the result is. So as you can see, that's a lot of layers of, 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 of decision-making or a lot of uh, opportunities for independent minds to come to look at a case. 
and, and make a decision on it. And obviously in this case, we thought that uh, it met all that criteria. So we did recommend uh, that uh, we try to seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, as you know, or at least those of you who are lawyers know, it's really hard to get uh, a case in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, regardless of how important it is when you're, when you're uh, working from the civil side of things. They, they only do a handful of civil cases every year. Um, so we weren't very confident that we would get the court to hear it, especially since the Court of Appeal decision was a unanimous one. But at the end of the day, we, we got leave to appeal, and uh, that case proceeded to, to the court. And uh, it came down and with, uh, again, the case has gone back to trial, and, and that's where it sits right now. But again, it, it didn't completely overrule the Court of Appeal, but it decided that the result that the Court of Appeal reached was probably correct, but not exactly for the reasons that the, the Court of Appeal uh, said, and it, it went on to explore uh, some aspects of, of what we call the, uh, the, the policy defense. Um, and that's something that those of you who have ever been to any webinar or seminar or a risk management event of, uh, that involves the MIABC uh, ought to be familiar with. We've been talking about the policy defense, I think, since the organization was formed. Um, basically, it, you know, historically, the, the provincial and federal governments in Canada couldn't be held liable in negligence. And that didn't change until the 1950s when new legislation provided that government is subject to the same liabilities as a person. And then in the 80s, as more and more litigants were suing governments, the courts began to recognize that public authorities should not be treated like private entities for the purpose of negligence law. And government bodies had to be free to make what are called true policy decisions uh, involving balancing social and economic considerations without fear that those decisions are going to be scrutinized in a court sometime later. And in 1989, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, probably on its second or third attempt to, to explain the nuances of this new liability regime, came up with the policy operational distinction. It said that true policy decisions that involve social, political, or economic factors would not attract liability. But operational decisions, those made to implement those policy choices, would. And this became known as the policy defense. Um, the, the application of that defense, until Marchie, we found the Supreme Court of Canada really hadn't provided a good clear-cut test for distinguishing between policy and operational decisions. And I got to tell you, a lot of lawyers and a lot of law firms, including the MIABC, have spent a lot of time try to figure out precisely where that, that, that line is, distinguishing between a policy decision that can't be reviewed by the court and an operational decision that could lead to a liability fight. And um, we've spent a lot of time trying to explain this to courts and people and lawyers, and it is, uh, I think, fair to say it's a very difficult question, even for really senior, experienced lawyers in the field to uh, come up with. Um, 
courts we found were often prepared to treat as a core policy decision those that were based on budgetary or staffing constraints. Uh, written policies we found were generally taken at face value without much of the way of an in-depth analysis as to the process by which the policy was adopted. But even unwritten policy decisions or a combination of written and unwritten decisions could give rise to a successful policy defense. Without clear guidance from the court on what constitutes a true policy, it was often difficult to predict whether a policy defense would succeed in any different case. So, as you can see, this had all the ingredients of the sort of thing that we really could benefit from a, from a higher court's opinion on, especially the Supreme Court of Canada. So it wasn't something as, as clear and brand new as you could be sued for snow removal. It was, what is the difference between carrying out snow removal in accordance with the established policy of the local government and just doing something at an operational level to implement that policy. And, and I'm going to turn it over to Megan now, and she is going to take us through uh, the facts of the case and, uh, and what happened to get it to the Supreme Court of Canada. So over to you, Megan. Thanks, Tom. So um, the one thing that is really notable about Marchi and the city of Nelson when it comes to the facts is the cat. The facts are absolutely not notable at all. Um, this is sort of like your run-of-the-mill type of case that we defend. We have defended many times before, and we will continue to defend again. And, um, and, and these are facts that, as you hear them, will become, you know, you, they, they will ring true for you, and they will, there will be some familiarity. So after a heavy snowfall, the city of Nelson uh, started plowing and sanding their streets, um, you know, pursuant to their snow removal. Wow. snow clearing and removal policies. So they had a written policy, they had some unwritten practices, snow starts falling and they start trying to remove it from the downtown city core, which was the priority area to, remove, to move all the snow, uh, to clear the streets so that traffic could move in the downtown core, which is the most uh, uh, populated and traveled area of the city of Nelson, before they moved on to other areas like roads that were on hillsides. Um, and as they got more slippery, we would become quite dangerous. Um, this included, when they were clearing the downtown core, it included clearing snow from a, the angled parking stalls um, in the downtown core, and particularly on Baker Street, which is where the incident occurred. So the city cleared the snow from these angled parking stalls, and um, they piled the snow up um, along the curb, uh, where the curb meets the sidewalk. Um, in what, what we refer to in Canada as Winrow. And for any of you who actually saw the arguments before the Supreme Court of Canada, which were televised, and I have to say our whole staff were watching this, there was quite the discussion about um, uh, the, the, the word Winrow and how we all in Canada know what a Winrow is uh, because we're so familiar with snowfall. Um, they didn't clear access to the sidewalk when they, they simply, you know, piled up snow in windrows and then went on to clear other priority streets with the idea that they actually had to come back and remove the snow and take it out of the downtown core and dump it somewhere else. Um, so the manner in which the, the city, you know, plowed the parking stalls wasn't set out in the policy. 
But the idea that they would clear the streets in the downtown core and then move on to streets that were on the hillside, um, that was in sort of the priority, that was in the written policy and the priority route. Um, and then how they actually removed those windrows and what they did with that snow or how they um, plowed those streets, that was a matter of practice or a, a, the unwritten policy component. Um, so the city did provide evidence that that was part of an unwritten policy, is how they actually plowed um, parking stalls. The plaintiff, um, you know, the, the city was still in the, the process of clearing snow in the city, um, in various areas of the city, but they had plowed the downtown core. Um, the plaintiff arrived downtown that morning, uh, parked in one of the cleared angled parking stalls, got out of her vehicle, and then instead of walking down to the end of the block um, to get onto the sidewalk, she to reach the sidewalk, she's decided to climb over the snowbank um, and stepped into the windrow. Um, and unfortunately, her foot landed right on the curb um, and, and the weight of her body and the angle on which her foot landed on her curb, um, it, she suffered a, a very serious injury to her leg in which Tom already alluded to uh, when we were assessing the case there was no dispute that she had in fact suffered this injury um, and that if she was able to establish that the city was negligent uh, we agreed on the amount of damages that she would be entitled to now the real issues in this particular case were really um, you know focused around sort of three or can be sort of summarized in, into three issues so the first issue at trial that the court needed to consider was, you know, was the city's decision around how to remove the snow from the downtown core, was that a core policy decision? Um, and then if it was, then the city would be immune from liability. And that's where the whole policy defense came in. But the whole case wasn't simply about the policy defense. That's certainly what um, the Supreme Court of Canada focused on. But the other issue was, you know, well, if the city's decision around how to remove the snow um, was an operational decision, not a policy decision, then was, was the city negligent in how they removed that snow and therefore caused the plaintiff's injuries? And then the third issue that the courts considered at trial is whether the plaintiff caused her own injuries by traversing the snowbank um, rather than walking around down to the, the end of the block to get onto the sidewalk. The trial judge, when considered all of the arguments, um, dismissed the plaintiff's claim. And I think this is really important to understand because we've heard, you know, a lot of discussion about the case and a lot of comments from uh, talking to people with the case, about the case. Um, many people don't actually realize that the, the court dismissed the case on two bases and really one, only one issue was dealt with on appeal. And, and that's that, you know, first of all, the court found that the city's snow removal decisions were core policy decisions, and the city didn't owe the plaintiff a duty of care. Um, and that's the decision that we follow up through the appeal process. But the second part that often gets missed is that the court also decided that even if this was an operational decision, and there was a duty that the city did owe the plaintiff a duty, that the city didn't breach the standard of care. And they did what was reasonable in the circumstances and that the plaintiff caused her own injuries by choosing to traverse the snowbank. And so that's the issue that Thompson mentioned, you know, this case is actually not over and it's going back to trial uh, in August uh, because 
that issue hasn't been fully decided. Um, in fact, the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, didn't address whether or not the city was negligent in these circumstances, and um, the Court of Appeal, Appeal did find some, some uh, problems with the way the judge came to that conclusion, and so sent it back to trial for a new trial. Um, those issues were appealed to the Court of Appeal, as Tom mentioned, by the plaintiff, and the Court of Appeal set aside the trial decision and held that the judge had not properly assessed the distinction between policy and operational decisions. So the court basically said, look, the decision on how to remove the snow from the downtown core um, and the fact that you decided not to clear a path from the parking stalls to the sidewalk, that was an operational decision. It wasn't a policy decision. You're not immune from liability. And then when it was appealed up to the Supreme Court of Canada, the court found in favor of Ms. Marching, um, the plaintiff, and held that the city hadn't proved its decision to create a continuous snowbank along the sidewalk was a core policy decision. So, um, you know, really the question on appeal here was, was piling up the snow in windrows an operational or policy decision? Um, and in Finding that it was actually an operational decision and not a policy decision, the court, the Supreme Court of Canada, took um, the opportunity to really clarify what they meant, what what they mean a core policy decision should look like. Um, and they really, you know, boiled it down to a few factors that need to be in place if you're going to establish. That, they're, that a local government or a public entity has made a core, what's, what they're going to say is a core policy decision from which the court should not be able to question that decision. Um, so the, the Supreme Court of Canada really looked at, you know, what a public entity or a local government or uh, different levels of government, what their duties are and what their responsibilities are and what their role is in society. And, you know, said, look, your role is to, you know, uh, as a public entity or as a local government is to gather resources from your tax base and then out figure out how to allocate those resources. And that involves a lot of weighing of, you know, competing priorities because you've got different groups, different groups in society that need different things. And you've got a finite number of resources in which to serve the public. And so your job as a local government, and particularly as the elected officials, is to figure out how to allocate those resources by balancing those priorities. And so when you are making a core policy decision that the court should not be able to question, um, those have to be made, you have to be able to demonstrate that when you're making that decision, you are balancing those priori priorities about how to allocate resources. So for a decision to clearly constitute a core policy decision, the decision maker should be an elected official because they're the ones that are elected to figure out how to allocate those resources. And if it's not an elected official, it should be someone who's as close as possible to the elected officials or to those decision makers in the hierarchy of government um, to be able to establish that they have the authority to um, balance, you know, be responsible for balancing those competing priorities and allocating government's finite resources. So the closer the decision maker is to elected officials, for instance, your CAO, um, your the heads of your departments, they're closer to those elected officials than frontline staff, 
um, the easier it's going to be to establish that they were balancing priorities when they made the decision that you're claiming is a policy decision. And then therefore it's worthy of protection by the courts. When the decision maker is an employee or a group of employees that are you know, frontline staff that are delivering the services, they're really in charge with the implementation. They're not in charge with sort of that higher level of balancing and of allocating resources and balancing those competing priorities. And so it's more likely that decisions that they make are not going to be constitute for policy decisions. The second point that the, the um, court made was uh, it's really important to look at the process by which the decision was made when you're determining whether or not it's a core policy decision. And core policy decisions, those are the ones that involve balancing, again, it's really back to that balancing of competing priorities. And when you're trying to balance competing priorities, you really should be engaging in some sort of sustained deliberation and, and you should be debating, you know, how to allocate those resources. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the debate has to occur in a public forum, but it could, you know, in a, in a public hearing. Uh, but certainly at the council level or your regional district board level, there should be some sort of debate or even among senior staff as, you know, is this the right way to reallocate those resources considering all the other priorities um, that we have in terms of local government service delivery. And the deliberation process, the courts, it should also involve input from different levels of authority. So it shouldn't necessarily just be council that's debating this, but they should gather information from frontline staff or from, you know, um, your senior managers or possibly from the public. You know, you want to be looking at different perspectives when you're balancing those competing priorities. And I know you're probably thinking to yourself, God, this sounds like a lot of work. We're never going to be able to make any policy decisions. And the, you know, and what we say to that is, you're right, not every decision that you make is going to be a policy decision. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be negligent. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be liable in all circumstances for anything that goes wrong in your local government. Because you still um, can, you know, act in accordance with the standard of care. You can still deliver services to your community in the best way possible that you can, according to your own policies and procedures, whether they're core policy decisions or not. And the court may see you've done what's reasonable in the circumstances. The court did say that, look, decisions that are made by a single employee or a group of employees that are reacting to a particular event, they're unlikely to be considered core policy decisions, right? It's really got to be something that's thought out ahead of time that involves a lot of consultation um, and that really you can demonstrate that you were trying to think about how to balance that allocation of resources. The course also sort of talked a lot about this idea of um, that the, the nature and extent of budgetary decisions aren't always core policy decisions. And that's something that you know, it's been really discussed in the previous case law. It's like, okay, if it, if it involves somehow spending money, then it's a poor policy decision. And that's simply not the case. So they sort of said, well, budgetary decisions might be considered poor policy decisions. Not every budgetary decision will be. Those day-to-day -day budgetary decisions that, that individual employees are making. So how much staff should we schedule for today's park inspection? Or how many... Um, 
you know, how many lifeguards do we need on, on duty at the school? Or, um, you know, how many staff can we, should we schedule to clear the snow for this particular snowfall? Um, those aren't going to be core policy decisions because those are, those are reactionary decisions. Uh, while they do involve budget, they are decisions that are made in the moment by individual employees. Bigger budgetary decisions like how do we allocate this amount of budget to this particular service, uh, to these departments, those involve weighing competing interests because you're looking at how much money do we as a, have a whole in our operational budget and how much can we allocate to each department to, to deliver the services. Those are decisions that are typically made by council or by senior staff, and those are those decisions that really involve those competing interests um, and will be considered for policy decisions. And then fourthly, um, the extent to which the decision was based on objective criteria is another factor that the courts are going to look at when deciding something for policy decision or not. So they're going to, you know, look at, again, it comes back to that weighing competing interests, right? Um, the more a decision weighs competing interests and requires value judgment, the more likely it's going to be considered a policy decision. But if a decision is based on technical standards or general standards of reasonableness, um, it's, it's more likely to be, a, 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 it's less likely to be a policy decision and more likely to be an operational decision. So that's kind of a summary of, of what the court, what the Supreme Court of Canada decided. Uh, my message to you is don't give up. You can still make decisions that are, are protected by immunity. Um, but it, and it also doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be liable for delivering local every time you know someone slips and falls um, and there's an allegation that you negligently cleared the snow. That is not the case at all because you there are you can set up circumstances so that you, you make core policy decisions and Tom's going to talk about that in a few minutes. But you also, you know, you're, you may be delivering your services in a way that's reasonable and that meets the standard of care. And, and you won't be negligent. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sherman because he's going to talk about what are some of the practical impacts that we've actually seen as a result um, of this decision uh, and what's going on on the claims front. Thank you very much, Megan. Uh, you're likely going to hear us repeat or reiterate a few things, and uh, you will hear me reiterate what Megan just finished. But Full disclosure, I might be a bit biased with the comments I'm going to be making uh, about the decision and its practical impact, but I think it's important, and this is probably something that you want to hear uh, from, from myself and my people as far as how it relates to claims, uh, what I'm going to tell you, or the answer to this question is what has changed and what hasn't. My answer is everything and nothing. My view is, and this is the important part for our, for our participants today, and I said the same thing at our risk management conference, the sky is not falling. Policy defense is not dead. Um, that's wishful thinking on the part of plaintiff's counsel as, uh, and other defense counsel as well. I think part of this to be honest with you, I think when this decision first came out, we were quite surprised by the reaction of our members, um, uh, lawyers that we work with, 
of the, the amount of angst this created. And I think that is due to what Tom had commented from the very beginning, is that obviously the media and plaintiff's lawyers and other counsel didn't read the whole decision. They were cherry-picking certain aspects. And that's what was being reported. And all of a sudden, the Supreme Court accounted decision was about policy decision and the criteria that they eventually set down. It, you know, they made it appear that it only related to snow removal claims. And it's like, no, it's about policy. Policy decisions on various services that our members provide. So I reiterate, I repeat, the sky is not falling and policy defense is not dead. They are still available to us. Uh, next slide, please. However, this flows with that first point as far as uh, you know, uh, the idea that well, all of a sudden local government can be sued uh, for liability if they do something negligently. I mean, that's a, Tom said that initially as well. That, that's always been the case. They made it seem as though this is something new. And I, and, I, and I blame that on the media reporting only on bits of the decision as well as uh, you know, comments made by plaintiff's counsel and other defense counsel, again, cherry-picking certain aspects of the decision. And that created a lot of uh, angst and confusion uh, on the part of our, our members. And we had to deal with that very, you know, in the first couple of weeks of, uh, of that decision coming out. And that's why it continues to be uh, something important for us to be discussing and presenting. And uh, you know, we've got a lot of people attending today to hear what we have to say. So my comments are that, you know, realistically, these sort of things happen. Decisions happen all the time. This is not unique. Uh, some are good, some are bad. But with regards to the policy defense, the way I view it is, hey, we had a great run with the policy defense. Um, we had some very useful decisions that came out. Uh, the, the, the judges, plaintiff's counsel, defense counsel, mediators, um, judges, they understood of what we meant when we trotted out the policy defense argument uh, or when we took a hard line on liability. They got it. Uh, but that didn't happen overnight. That took a, a long time for us to establish that. So what happens is that with the Supreme Court of kind of decision, it kind of puts us back, you know, I'll be frank, it, it doesn't help us, you know, with regards to defending our members and all that. But the idea that, you know, all of a sudden uh, local governments can be sued um, because of this decision is ridiculous, all right? Uh, it's always been that local governments uh, could be held responsible um, or liable for negligent uh, decisions that result in loss or damage. So policy defenses are still available. However, what happened was over time, we used it maybe too much. We were too reliant on the policy defense. We just had to say policy defense and, and plaintiff's councils and other councils would run away. Uh, we used it as a blunt tool, a blunt instrument. And the way I view it is that, you know, we can't be blamed for it because it was working for us. Uh, now, though, with the Supreme Court of Canada decision, we can't do that. Uh, we have to be more strategic, more surgical, in a way, uh, when viewing a potential policy defense as to whether it is uh, it meets the criteria that were set down in the Supreme Court of Canada decision and whether it's still available to us. And as Megan has indicated uh, a moment ago, even if we don't have a core policy defense, it doesn't mean we're defenseless. 
Okay. Mm. Uh, policy defense is only one defense uh, of many. Other defenses that we have uh, related to causation or foreseeability arguments, uh, statutory immunity, uh, contributory negligence on the part of plaintiff, uh, liability on the part of others, all those things are still available to us. So, you know, policy defense just happened to be one that we used quite frequently and was our go-to. Uh, next slide, please. So, what we have now is, with regards to the, the decision in the Supreme Court of Canada, is a clear checklist regarding what constitutes a poor policy defense. And what that does is it gives us a bit of a, a playbook for us, as well as with plaintiff's counsel and other defense counsel, uh, who will ask the same questions as to whether it meets the various criteria to be considered a poor policy. And as a result, uh, on number, you know, item number two or point number two, is that you know we will identify certain claims, uh, certain legal actions that uh, may be incomplete as far as the information, as far as the details, as far as the documentation, as far as the thought process that went into deciding uh, a particular policy. Uh, there will be fewer cases where we can use a policy that's in the pure bona fide core policy defense. But as I said a moment ago, that's not the only defense that we have. And that's helpful. I think having this decision, it clarifies things for everybody. And to us, what it does that is that it makes us look at the policy defense more clearly. And if if it's not applicable, if we have concerns about the policy defense, we then pivot to the standard of care, the duty of care defense, which could be just as strong as a defense. We don't necessarily need a policy or core policy of defense. Uh, we can make arguments with regards to uh, the actions of the member, whether they were reasonable, whether they met the standard of care, because you have to keep in mind that the, 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 the standard of care that's required from local government is not one of perfection. It's one of reasonableness. And if we could uh, provide evidence and make the case that what they did, the actions they took, were consistent with what other local governments do, that uh, that it's not inconsistent, uh, then we could, we, uh, we still have a chance of establishing that there is no negligence or liability um, on the part of the local government. Okay, uh, the last slide, please. Or the last slide for me. So, not surprisingly, the impact of this decision, you know, as soon as it came out, you know, we were getting contacted by our members and from other lawyers we were also contacted by plaintiffs' counsel. Uh, you know, they immediately, you know, tried to paint the picture that we don't have a policy defense, that we don't have defenses. Uh, how much are you going to pay us? When are you going to pay us? Uh, which is kind of ridiculous. So, you know, we had to deal with that. Uh, to be honest with you, initially, you know, we had, you know, when this first came out, we had some concerns. Uh, we had some cases that were. Uh, on the go that were based on policy defenses and all of a sudden we had to kind of pivot. We had to re review it because all of a sudden defense counsel or plaintiff's counsel uh, would be pointing to uh, the Supreme Court candidate decision and say, you, you know, you have nothing. And that's not true. So as I said earlier, we have to use policy defense more strategically. 
And if that's not available to us, then we just pivot with regards to the standard of care uh, discussion. And essentially, we have to re-educate uh, plaintiff's counsel, the claimants, uh, defense counsel, mediators, etc. So a very good example of this was right after this decision, we had a claim, a slip and fall claim uh, for one of our members. And, uh, you know, the case wasn't very strong for the plaintiffs. They, they were, you know, really not taking it too seriously. We had a mediation that was scheduled uh, like three times and canceled each time. And as soon as the decision came out, they approached our legal counsel and said, okay, you know, you guys are in trouble now. Uh, when are you going to pay us? And, you know, cherry picked the decision and uh, tried to make the argument that, you know, we're, we're, we, we had liability. And my instructions to our defense counsel was that's BS. We pushed back. We pushed back hard. We pushed back with the, the, the argument about uh, reasonableness. And after a little bit of touring and throwing, the plaintiff's counsel eventually conceded that, yeah, you know, we're not dead in the water. We had some room for negotiation. There was a bit of horse trading. And eventually we settled it for far less than, than they were demanding. But, you know, that's just a good example of, of, of what happened immediately after this decision. So as far as summing things up, as far as the impact to claims, claims handling, litigation, uh, yeah, no big surprise that plaintiff's counsel uh, have all of a sudden become more bullish uh, about their claims, uh, expecting uh, to be paid. Um, not surprising that, uh, you know, we put forth the policy defense argument that they're questioning it, they're scrutinizing it. They're looking at the details and asking for the details as to how the policy was arrived at, what level of decision making was there, etc. No surprise there. Uh, another impact potentially is that it's going to take longer for us to resolve claims because it's going to take more time and effort to convince them that uh, there is no liability, or uh, as, as the first bullet there, that they're going to be more bullish and they're going to run things to trial, uh, where in the past they perhaps uh, may not have. Uh, we did see a couple of copycat claims that were similar, that were related to stone removal, and uh, you know they, they, they couched or described their action or claim um, similar to the Marchi claim. Um, there was also a lot of uh, misunderstanding or misstatements uh, with regards to we lost Marchi, and that's not true. We lost at the Supreme Court of Canada level with regards to the policy defense, but liability was not decided. I mean, the SEC could have decided on liability and said that the city was negligent, and that would have been the end of it. But no, they said this matter should go back to trial. And we reviewed this. Uh, the, the claims examiners, our lawyers, myself, uh, we reviewed whether we had defenses outside of the policy defense, and we felt very comfortable that we still do, and hence, we are going to come. So the idea that we lost Marching is not accurate. Um, we might see plaintiff's counsel and claimants take on more marginal, questionable claims because of this decision. Uh, but that that's to be seen. This, you know, the decision just came out this year. It's still early. So who knows whether that's going to be the case. I think there's other factors as to why plaintiff's counsel may be more bullish uh, with regards to going after uh, local governments. And uh, I suppose I said this already, it's still a little bit too early to know the full impact of this decision. But I just want to end with this, is that our members should not be 
overly concerned or worried about it. If, if something needs to be changed or fixed or improved as far as policy decisions, to make it a core decision, then, then those are steps that our members should be taking. You know, those are lessons learned. But as far as defense goes, and I just go back to what Tom said from the very beginning, we handle claims on a principal basis. We look at each claim on its own basis. If there are issues with regards to defenses, if there's issues with regards to negligent operations, we're going to be settling those claims. So, so nothing's really changed. It's just going to take a little bit more work on our part. And there might be some instances where uh, you know, we won't have those solid defenses and we may need to compromise. But you know, we're going to stick to our principled approach and uh, continue uh, managing claims uh, like that on behalf of our members. So with that, I pass this back to, uh, I believe, Tom. Okay, thanks, Sherman. Um, I guess that now brings us to the point of so what? Where does that leave the MIABC and the advice it provides its members? And I think what uh, you have to do is we got to start from looking at this with some perspective. Uh, we are a common law country. BC is a common law province. And that means the law evolves over time. And things change, the developments come, and sometimes decisions go one way. And sometimes after a while, they're modified or go another. And this is just part of that process. That's part of our system. And it's a, it's a, good, it's a good part of a good system. So it's not gloom and doom. It's just observing developments and, and making sure that as, as we go forward, that we take those developments into account when, uh, when we're, we're doing whatever it is we're doing to do our job for our communities. Um, the, the policy defense might be less available, but it's really not going to change the advice we give too much. And it really shouldn't affect the, the way you do your job too much. Um, the process that leads to policy making and policy decisions, even if they're not true policy decisions, uh, in the sense that they're not endowed with this legal immunity, there's still lots of policy decisions being made at all levels of all organizations all the time. And the type of policy decision it is isn't really that relevant to whether you're liable for negligence or, or claims. That depends on whether you acted reasonably. And we don't tell our members what to do, but once they decide what it is they want to do, we're, we're really willing to sit down with them and, and, and help to do that in a way that, that minimizes liability risk. And that's really the overarching advice. What we need to, uh, to do is just go back to the basics. Uh, there are lots of additional benefits to adopting a written maintenance or inspection policy that simply try to attract legal immunity. You know, especially this is the case when it comes to inspecting and maintaining your assets. Uh, we just don't want to have our members of our communities injured while they're using local government facilities. And that should be that should be the objective of, of all of you when you're when you're carrying out your jobs. You know, by by implementing a written policy, you can ensure that your staff take a, a common approach to asset maintenance. Uh, written policies can also help 
uh, you set reasonable expectations for service standards amongst uh, the members of your community. And policies can also help you defend against the negligence claim. They establish that you met the standard of care. Uh, presumably, when you come and go through the process to develop any sort of policy at any level, it involves a weighing of, of, and balancing of interests and, and, uh, and resources, and, and that's all part of the that's all part of the uh, the, pro uh, the process that uh, defending claims is. Uh, you know, uh, Megan for years has been traveling the province giving risk management advice, and I've got here a slide that she always includes and has for many years with respect to developing policies and, and, and how to implement them. And the fact of the remember is, Megan called it the gold standard. And every aspect of it is still as valid as it was before the Marchie case, even if it's not being applied to what is called a true policy decision or a core policy decision. And the gold standard, you ask four things. It's the policy of writing, because if it's in writing, that means people are going to all know what the policy is. They're not basing it on what somebody has told them or what people remember or what they all they all thought the, the usual practice was in, in their department or adopted by their colleagues. Has the policy been approved by management or council? That's just that's just good practice. Even though it might be taken at a position in the organization where uh, it isn't necessary to go and get council approval, simply the process that leads to having it approved and discussed with more senior staff, uh, your senior management, or even if, the, if, if it's determined to be so fundamental, such a fundamental part of your governance that you want to have it adopted by council. If that consideration has been made and it's been approved by the appropriate person at the level of the organization, that's just good practice and it's a good way to establish that what that practice is, is reasonable. Um, the other thing, when you're looking at a written policy, you gotta ask, does, what can we reasonably achieve here? And we see this frequently where, where, where members will, will come, put together a policy that that sounds good, but it's very hard to figure out whether you comply with it. A classic example are, are, are defects in the sidewalks where somebody will write down that their policy is to, uh, to, to take care of them, quote, as soon as resources allow. Well, what the heck does that mean? And if it, can't, it doesn't have a precise meaning, then it really doesn't have a meaning at all. Um, is the policy clear and easy to follow? We're not looking to establish standards of perfection. What we are looking for is directions and, 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 and practices that um, are easy for everybody, staff, management, and members of the public to understand and to determine whether it's been met. So, as I said before, it's, um, it's, it's really just another refinement of the common law. So, you know, if you want to make sure policy, you know, a core policy decision is is going to be applied with this wide immunity, make sure the decision maker 
is responsible for balancing competing interests and allocating resources. The person making that decision doesn't have that authority, then they're the, that's the wrong person to be making a core policy decision. You've got to build in a consultation and deliberation process, and the more that's recognized and documented, the better it is to, uh, to establish the, the reasonableness and, and the force of the, of the policy. And lawyer, as lawyers and, 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 and risk managers, they can't help but tell you that every decision, the process should be documented. Even if it, you know, it, it's probably nothing more 